I found out one of my real enjoyments was helping people do better than they thought they could. And that really took me through, you know, most of my business life. In fact, the sort of mid-career, I recognized why I was, I tried to say, why are you successful? You seem to be doing okay, why? And I started to look back at that particular humor magazine and having that sort of experience of putting people together, motivating them and helping them doing better than they thought they could was really a secret for me. And I passed that on to people. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners and entrepreneurs discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Shapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. It's the holiday season, and many of us will take time to reflect on the year and what we are grateful for. My guest today is one of the most grateful people I have ever met. His story embodies the American dream. Ed Hagem spent his childhood in a string of foster homes and orphanages across the U.S. Despite these dire circumstances, Ed earned a scholarship to attend the University of Rochester. After college, he served in the U.S. Navy and later graduated from Harvard Business School. Ed went on to build an extraordinary career in the financial services industry, serving as CEO of Furman Cells, ING Altus Group, and MLH Capital, among other roles. Ed has been married for 57 years with three children and eight grandchildren. And through his family foundation, he has supported numerous organizations that promote education, healthcare, arts, culture, and conservation. In today's episode, Ed shares his story and life lessons with us, which you can read much more about in two books he recently published, The Road Less Traveled and The Island of the Four Peas, a modern fable about preparing for your future. But first, let's go back to where Ed's story begins. As a three-year-old in the passenger seat of his father's car, driving down Route 66 during the Great Depression. My father and mother got divorced when I was three years old. Dad, he was uh, unemployed. He lost everything between 29 and 33. And he was a wealthy man in 29. But anyway, they got divorced, and mother took me from Los Angeles to St. Louis. Uh, My father got... uh, Visiting rights on Sunday, 1,800 miles away, and $5 a week of alimony and child support. On one of the first Sundays, he drove those 1,800 miles, picked me up, and instead of taking me to a park or to a movie, he got back on Highway 66 and basically kidnapped me and took me to Los Angeles. Told my mother not to look for me and told me at age three that she had passed away or died and I would never see her again. For 57 years, I believe that lie, that... uh, uh, Dad and I, uh, for the first couple of years, he was a, had, had become a, uh, involved in radio and ended up as a, a communications officer on a merchant ship. I would stay with neighbors, and he would go to sea and then come back, and we would be buddies for you know, that period of time. When the war broke out, unfortunately, or he either volunteered or was drafted into a, the uh, merchant marines, and I was put then into the Catholic welfare system, even though I was Jewish. And I ended up in five Catholic foster homes. Anyway, when I was uh, 11 years old, the war ended. I was 10 years old. My father sent for me. In the fall, we went to Coney Island where we had a a room in a hotel. And I went to the local school. It was a good year for me. Not so good for my father because he couldn't find any land-based employment. Had to go back to sea. And the summer of 47, I was supposed to stay with a neighbor lady in August. And she turned out she wouldn't take me at the last minute. And my father actually left me in the hotel for pretty much the month, which again is sounds awful, 
But on the other hand, it taught me how to ride the subways. It taught me how to be independent, how to stay out of trouble and so on. In September, she was supposed to take me, and again, she decided against it. And from the sea, he basically found an orphanage for me in Far Rockaway. And I ended up going to the Israel Orphan Asylum and uh, arrived there alone. But for the first time in my life, I got two things I didn't have before. One was community, and the second one was consistency. But unfortunately, as I got to be 14, 15, I started to age out of that orphanage, and my father completely disappeared. I luckily got sent to an orphanage in Yonkers, New York. And in my sophomore year, I got the most important epiphany in my life was that the way out of this predicament was to go to a private college. I did well in school. I became a varsity athlete. And uh, my senior year, I was expecting to get the New York State Scholarship, which I didn't get. But I applied to the, the NRTC Scholarship. I be- the NRTC Scholarship really vaulted me into a, a whole different arena. I was able to, you know, go to, go to university, go to a private college. I applied to three colleges, Cornell, RPI, and Rochester. So I went to Rochester. And I arrived there by bus in my black leather jacket with the the hair was too long, and the first week was rush week, and I got rejected by all the fraternities, and I'll stop there because my daughter says I always answer questions too long. So here we go. <laughs> I think your story is so fascinating because when I read about it, my understanding of you know kind of growing up in the foster system was pretty binary, meaning either you've got a family, you know, like most of us do, or you're in the foster system and you never really see or have any relationship with your biological mother and father. And yet for you, throughout that upbringing, your father was sometimes visiting you, sometimes writing you letters, giving you advice as a father might. And that had to be pretty challenging, you know, to have that kind of back and forth with your dad where you had a relationship, but it wasn't really a complete one. And it was, it was to some extent on and off. Exactly, but it's all that I had. And my first ghostwriter really wanted me to hate my father, but I didn't, I loved him. He was the only thing I had. And he, he did something that I find I pass on to people. The most important thing is unconditional love. And he gave me that. He always felt that I was going to be very special. I never did anything wrong. The letters, the phone calls and so forth. But we were separated for nearly four and a half years while the war was on. And all I got was letters and telegrams and postcards and so forth from him. Later on, you know, it, 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 it faded very badly because he disagreed with almost all my decisions. But while I was a child, he was very supportive in his own way. And luckily, I, I came to the conclusion after looking at his life, I didn't blame him. I mean, they were immigrants that came in 1900. Between 1900 and, and uh, you know, 29, he went from really nothing to having his own airplane and buildings and everything else. Between 29 and 33, having invested in RCA on 10% margin, he lost everything. And he said to me, when he, when he was at 33 years old, he had a car and a box of cigars, and he had to decide between committing suicide and driving across country. Lucky for me, he decided to drive across country, <laughs> or, or I wouldn't be here. But so, you know, I, I, I understood that. And living on Wall Street, you know, I've seen so many people who, you know, had great difficulty, lost fortunes. They never recover. It's very hard to recover, and he never recovered. No. Well, you have a remarkable resilience, and the fact that you got to a private college is incredible given your your upbringing. But what I think is really interesting is you not only go to the University of Rochester, you go on to Harvard Business School. Years later in life, you become a trustee and eventually chairman at the University of Rochester. 
Can you talk about the importance of education to you? I think at some point you said your alma mater was your first real home. And then also why you think education is so important for the next generation. It's not my quote, it's George Eastman's quote, but in my mind, he said education is a solution to almost everything. And I added that it's, it is a solution to everything. In my case, you know, obviously I got into a situation where I was associating with other people who I could learn from. First of all, that was most important. The second thing is it teaches you how to work, it teaches you how to, how to think, it teaches you basically how to get along with others. And for me, it gave me a chance to experiment. I thought maybe I wanted to be a physicist, so I took advanced physics in my sophomore year. I looked around and I said, hmm, this is not for me. You know, these people are smarter than I am. I'm out of here. I got a D plus and left, you know, and I went back into engineering, which was, you know, I did, get, did graduate as a chemical engineer, which wasn't an easy task either. But I was able to experiment. I found some of my passions. I developed my passions. After recognizing I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, I entered the field of extracurricular activities. And during that period, I started a humor magazine and I found one of my passions was putting people together to solve a problem, to create a product, to start a program. That really gave me a kick. And I didn't know it at that time. And also I found out one of my real enjoyments was helping people do better than they thought they could. And that really took me through you know, most of my business life, in fact, the sort of mid-career, I recognized why I was, I tried to say, why are you successful? You seem to be doing okay, why? And I started to look back at that particular humor magazine and having that sort of experience of putting people together, motivating them and helping them doing better than they thought they could was really a secret for me and I passed, passed that on to people. But education really is the solution. There is just no two ways about that. I do believe most of the problems in America could be solved by educating, every, giving everybody something that they know how to do. After Harvard Business School, Ed found his way to the financial services industry, where over the next several decades, he built an extraordinary career. I ask Ed, a child of the Great Depression, what about this industry piqued his interest? When I was at business school, I came across the idea of trends or themes or waves. And being a chemical engineer, I was in, you know, I, I was in plastics before Dustin Hoffman, and I realized that was an interesting industry. I, uh, I, I actually was servicing poly, something called Hyfax and Profax, which turned to be polyethylene and polypropylene. And I was an applications research engineer. And, and I thought of going back in that industry but I looked at it and, you know, it was a more difficult industry to enter. And as I studied the industries that are around, I found the financial industry was sort of in its infancy. People forget that in those days, places like that took two people per year. They were tiny. And then I found even a more interesting industry called the mutual fund industry was just, just beginning. I went to a firm called Capital Research, which is now two trillion, was then 350 million with, with 12 employees. They told me that within, you know, three months, I'd have a suitcase and a, an airplane ticket and I could fly all over the country talking to management. I mean, I never took an investment course, but I started to realize here was an industry where you really, and I did want to manage. And I figured this would be a chance for me to look at all the industries in the world and be paid for it. And, you know, working as an engineer, I mean, I work long, long hours. And here, you know, you wore a suit and you got on an airplane, you flew to San Francisco and the president picked you up at the airport and you went to his office and he bought you lunch. And you know, I couldn't figure this out why they would pay you to do that. 
But I all of a sudden realized the mutual fund business was an interesting place to be. And also I believed in being contrary. And my class in business school, everybody went to, the big job was Ford, you know, it was a, and then it was Exxon and P&G. And only two of us went to the mutual fund industry. And of course, mutual fund industries turned out to be one of the fastest growing industries in the country. But within a very short period of time, I was able to get out and basically talk to everybody and find out whether I wanted to find an industry that I could really get involved with. I wasn't that interested in investments, but then all of a sudden it caught me and that was luck. It really kind of excited me to be, you know, write reports and predict the future. And, and then this thing called the stock market, which you could make a, a bet and find out whether you're right or not. And then I found out my personality fit it. This is another thing I tell the people. Uh, there was a time I wanted to be a venture capitalist, but it was too long a period to find out whether you're right or wrong. And my personality was, you know, I have to find out a little bit quicker. I, I was impatient to say, the, to say the least. Anyway, and the stock market gave me that. So that was kind of it. It was kind of, you know, here's an industry where you get responsibility. It's somewhat in, in its infancy. The trend looks very good. I was convinced that, that people would stop buying stocks and start to buy, you know, a fund where they could get a bunch of stocks all at once at a lower price and so forth. So it sort of analyzed that. What I find really fascinating about your career is as you progressed over time, it becomes clear that although you're obviously a smart guy and analytically it was important to understand the industry, you really got excited about and excelled at putting people together, identifying talent, putting someone in a role, and then giving them the opportunity to grow and do things beyond what they thought they were capable. That, to me, at least, seems like a key to your success as a business leader. That's exactly, in fact, I, you know, as you notice, uh, even I was an analyst for 10 years, I quickly, you know, after three years of capital research, I asked them to spin me out in my own company because I really enjoyed that whole process of taking people and motivating them and getting them to do things and then watching them happen. Just like I watched myself happen. I got a terrific kick out of that. And I found out a few secrets. One of the things is, and it's, it's cliche, but if you don't worry about who gets the credit, you can accomplish almost anything. And very early in my career, I developed another, what I call principles. Those are you know, my four Ps. My, the principles were basically, was if you'd started to deflect credit, you know, when someone said, Eric says, you've done a great job, Ed. I said, wait a second, Eric. You know, I, I did the job, but you know, Mary Sue and, and Tom were really the, the real drivers here. Ryan really helped. Without Ryan, we would not have made it. So you get a trifecta experience. First of all, Eric says, this guy really is a good guy. You feel good. And then when Ryan and, and Mary Sue and Joe find out that you gave them credit, it's a big deal. And then also, I just love predicting things. You know, my, in my book, you, the last sentence says, you know, my wife says, what's next? And that always gave me the greatest kick was to sit down and figure out what was next. And being running a small brokerage house, but well, investment bank, you know, in a small firm, you've got to figure out what's next. You've got to keep moving to that next lily pad because otherwise you're out of business. You know, you talked about your career experience, failing, trying a lot of different things out. You're certainly a lifelong entrepreneur. I mean, you've created a hedge fund, you, you built a golf course, you, you built numerous companies in, in the financial services industry. One thing I thought was interesting when I read it in your book was you have this advice, which you haven't always stuck to, never start anything from scratch as a young entrepreneur. And, and I would love for you to elaborate on that a bit and how that's guided your life. Well, I, I started things from scratch and I failed. I mean, I started Greenwich. I spun myself off. Capital Research is a fabulous company. 
And after three years, I told them they needed a new product line called Growth Funds. And so they said, we don't want to do growth funds in, in Los Angeles, so we'll do it in Connecticut. So I spun myself off, and we were on our way to success. And, you know, uh, there, in the book, it tells you it wasn't all my fault, but it's mostly my fault. I caught a disease, which I recommend young people don't catch. It's called hubris. I decided I could do everything. And when the comp- my parent company cut off their marketing capability, I decided, well, I was managing the fund and managing the people. I was also going to manage marketing, and I became the marketing guy. And it was a great gift to me to find out you just can't do everything. It's not because you're not smart enough, not because you don't work hard enough. But when you start doing certain kinds of things, it's deleterious to other kinds of things. Being a marketing man, I started to lose my ability to pick stocks. When I didn't spend as much time on it, that was one of the negatives, but it's a different talent. You develop different capabilities, which actually some are contrary to the other things you want to do. In other words, my great money managers, most of them are, aren't great people persons because with people, you got to spend time. You got to listen. You got to hear what's going on. You have to spend, you know, much more effort. And where you, when you're a stock picker, you, you know, you buy, you sell, you go on your, you on your way. And it's a, a different mentality. It's also a different analytical capability. So I tried to do all three and I failed and I failed miserably. And I had to sell the company back to my parent company. And, but I went on my way. I always believe in flow. Ed has never shied away from taking chances and pursuing the road less traveled. He is also in a way grateful for the qualities that his difficult childhood instilled in him. I ask him to share what his upbringing has taught him and if he has any advice for parents who may be facing the opposite challenge, raising children who are growing up with considerably more wealth and comfort than the generations that came before them. Perfect question and not easy, but my, given my disadvantages, first of all, you know, going from one place to the other, 18 places in, or 20 places in the first 18 years gave me adaptability, okay? And that's the case. Yeah, I, I was able to adapt. When E.F. Hutton said, who wants to go to Japan? I raised my hand. When, 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 when the, the Lehman Brothers, we want to open up China, I went. When there's a, a difficult circumstance, a different division to take over, at Lehman Brothers, you know, going in, taking over a declining money management business was fun to me. So I got adaptability. I also went from one place to the other. I got resilience. Resilience like a muscle. The more you use it, the better, you know, the better it is. I got perseverance. I had to persevere through difficult situations. I got self-confidence, you know. I got some other things. I got anger, which was not a good thing, but I got, got all those things. And you say, okay, what happens to a family that grows up like my children did in Greenwich, Connecticut? And my daughter basically said, that, tell, tell everybody the tennis court belongs to the next door neighbor, you know, <laughs> because she didn't want to admit that we were comfortable. So I, did, I made some of the mistakes early on that people like me make. I had nothing, so I want to give my kids everything, which was a huge mistake. You know, I tell people that in my condition, basically, make your kids uncomfortable. You know, the first m- minor step is when they're eight years old, send them to camp where they live in tents. You know, that's the first step. Also, get them away from their parents because because they're different people. They grew up differently than you did. So make them uncomfortable. It's a little bit, you know, artificial, but outward bound, Knowles. Knowles changed my daughter's life. She spent, you know, I don't know, six weeks on a canoe or a raft down in the Baja with six other girls, learn leadership, learn how to sleep on the ground and so forth. Uh, my son and I went to Outward Bound. You know, My grandson spent 30 days in the rain up in Alaska. 
You don't, you don't think you bond much with people if you're 30 days in the rain. And don't waste the summer. Get out there. Go to, you know, go to work in a, in a library in London or, or a, a farm in, in Japan. Get, get your kids out there in the open. If you don't, what happens to kids is when they get into the real world, they get anxieties. They come across a, a problem they can't solve and they get nervous about it. And they get uncomfortable and they can't handle it. And then they, then they fail and they fail and they don't exactly know why because they haven't had a previous experience. When you're younger, like I was, when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, you have to go through trauma, you go through it. You, know, you have no choice. You know, going from, uh, from 50 kids in a room to the second orphanage was great because only three kids in a room. Well, when I got to college, there's only two kids in a room. So, you know, it always got a little bit better. And so I, was, I could handle it. And, he, and you, you handle enough things when you're younger that you get through these things when you're older much more easily. Well, on the topic of family, you grew up with very little family in your childhood, but now you're very much a family man. I believe you've been married to your wife for, I think it's 57 years, Barbara. You have three children and eight grandchildren. And, and as much business success as you've had in your life, it's clear when I read your book that family is incredibly important. So I'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your family or why family is important. People ask me, you know, what's the most important thing you've done? By far, it's family. Uh, it's, it really is. Everything is said and done. And that's what's left. And, you know, family and friends, but mostly family. And it was very important because I didn't have one. And that's when, you know, my P's, the, the, the third P partners, the most important decision you make in life is to find a partner of some kind, someone who will share your life, you know, basically who will support you, who you can support, who will tell you that your, your shirt's hanging out or you should stand up straight or you talk too much or, you know, can criticize you and, and but is interested in you. That's the most important thing. Then children, in my mind, are what we put on the earth for is to try to produce people that will make the world a better place. And it is, it is just great satisfaction and frustration in, in children because it's hard for you to understand how they think because they haven't gone through what you've gone through. So I, I try to convince people who have frustration with their children that it's not your fault. You, you, you know, they're brought up totally different. They look at the world differently. And so my suggestion to people is with children, spend time with them. That's important. But it's the most important thing in life. When you're all, all said and done, it's family and friends. You are an incredibly motivated person. You have been your whole life and you have a lot more energy than most people I've met. What is your why? What gets you up in the morning and gets you excited about doing what you do? What's next is really what drives me and what excites me. Living in communities where you can communicate with other people and discuss things that are going on. The other thing that drives me is philanthropy is really trying to help people. I mean, Scott Peck said it better than I could, so I'll just quote him. He said, love is giving to others. And when you have a scholarship student or two, and I now have hundreds of them, it's really a kick to watch them, you know, take that next step, which I took. And so that's what drives me. You know, I, the more money I had, the more scholarships I would give. I, I was at a place the other day in, in Nantucket called Our House. And here were, you know, 20 high school students in which this woman basically takes care of every day. And going there and telling him my story and, you know, maybe helping her out a little bit, that really what, what drives me. And the golf course to me is also, this is a whole new experience. We're now the largest charity on the island. We support 50 other charities. 
We have raised $40 million in the last 25 years. We have put 30, or 30 to 40 kids through college. Now we have 62 kids in, in various schools, and within two years we'll have 100. 100 kids supported by, by the, uh, the golf course. And that's what's next. And this idea to add a whole dimension to college education. Think about that. Where colleges today, they taught me how to think. They gave me some techniques, gave me some, some capabilities. What they didn't do, which this, this I'm, I'm hoping to do, is to add a dimension. I want the, you to ask your college students, who are you? And why are you who you are? It's going back to self for a minute. And somewhere between 16 and 18, you sort of recognize, wait a second, I don't know who I am. And I want colleges to say to kids, what are your passions? What are your principles? Who are your partners? What are your plans? And then write it in pencil so you can constantly erase it, make it dynamic. And then when a student goes back at Christmas time, walks into his parents' house, and they, they taught me algebra and biology, but they really want to know who I am too. And I want to know who I am and who my good things are, what my capabilities are, my talents, my interests and my likes. And so I've developed this idea of a life design course, you know, quick and dirty, you know, get it started. And by the time you graduate, you have a plan of some kind. I'm hoping that adds direction to some percentage of kids, you know. Ed has spent his life overcoming adversity in the pursuit of what's next. But even he was not prepared for what he would discover when, after 25 years, he finally summoned the courage to open up an old suitcase full of his father's letters. There was, luckily, it was a rainy Sunday, and therefore I had to spend the time in, in the house. And so I pulled the suitcase out and I started looking in it, and uh, the letters had a lot of bad memories in it. Because, it, because after, although father and I were closest when I was a child, as I got older, I started to reject him. And, and I actually became very unhappy with him at points in time. We had a real falling out when I decided to leave the Navy. He thought that was a huge mistake. Then he, then he decided when I left engineering, it was even crazier, take all the money that I had in the world, go to this place called the Harvard Business School. And so we had a, a falling out. And then the biggest falling out of all was when, when I married Barbara, who basically he disagreed with. And I found out she looked a little like my mother. And so we had a falling out. So letters had bad things. But as I dug through it, I found a package I didn't recognize. They were yellow and so forth. And I read it. It was a correspondence between my mother and my father. And basically, she didn't die. I didn't realize, holy mackerel, she didn't die. So I hired a special investigator, and he, he went to St. Louis, and he found her, and she turned out to be 81 years old, and she had been married before, married afterwards, excuse me, had another son, and that's one of the funny things of the whole thing. She called him up and said, Phil, remember that brother you always wanted? <laughs> so anyway, so we found her, and then we had to decide whether we really wanted to, you know, connect with it because I had a wife and three children, a successful business, a happy man. Why do I want to bring this person in who my father described as really someone who was terrible? And so, uh, but I decided it was worthwhile. I wrote her a letter and say, I think I'm your son. And if you want to reconnect, call me on this evening. And she did. We went to St. Louis to visit her. She had in her apartment. And I remember ringing the doorbell of the apartment house. And I said, this is your son, 57 years late. Anyway, we spent 12 wonderful years together. She died at 93. And I found out something that was very unique for me. You know, I knew I wasn't all my father, but I didn't know what else I was. Here I found the things, certain parts of my life and certain characteristics I had really came from my mother. I could tell she was my mother right away. First of all, she talked too fast. <laughs> that was the first thing. She's also bent over slightly like I am. 
And then later on, I found out she likes to rhyme. I've rhymed all my life. So, you know, there's certain characteristics. Well, that must have been a, a remarkable experience. And I want to circle back on your upbringing. And you mentioned in your book, you believe that upbringing created some anger in you. And I promise I'm not a psychotherapist, but you marry Barbara, who I believe has a master's in counseling. And you talk about how she's done a lot of work on you and, and the anger that you've had possibly from your childhood. And I'm, I'm curious how that relationship transpired and then how you've managed and come to terms with this anger over the years later in life. I had, I had a lot of bad habits. I, got, I really get angry at things for no reason. And I started to realize someplace in my 20s that basically I got, was angry because I looked around as a child and say, why me? You know, why am I an orphan? Why don't I have a bicycle? Why can't I learn to swim? You know, why can't I have this and that? So it became a why me thing, and that drove anger inside me. But I didn't realize it until later on. And what I was able to do with the help of Barbara, I was able to channel that anger into doing my job better. And it became actually, it was energy I was able to direct at whatever I was doing. And that was required, you know, some counseling. In those days, you, know, you couldn't get counseling. As a college student, if you went to get help, that was a bad deal. But later on in life, I got some counseling to, to channel that anger into whatever I was doing. So actually it helped me to do things better than I, I thought I could do them as well because I had this energy that I was applying towards it. I still get angry. I mean, I, I tell people you have to watch out. Childhood has a huge effect on you. Even today, Sundays in the afternoon, I sometimes, for some reason, get a blue feeling or, or depressed. Now it's because at the orphanage, nobody came on Sunday. Everybody else had visitors and I didn't, I didn't have visitors. And so the same thing with anger. Every once in a while I still get a little angry for no reason and I catch myself. But it's almost all gone now. I'm getting too old to have anger. <laughs> I'm too lucky to. <laughs> I, I just thought it was such an interesting partnership in that way. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about or any questions that we've gone into that you might want to go into some more detail? If we've got a minute. I, I'd like to, to, to tell people that, that, that there are four realms of life in my mind, and they're very important. It's self, family, work, and community. And you're, the idea to balance those four parts will give you a greater chance of being successful. And you, you have to be successful, reasonably successful in each one of them. You can't be overly successful in any one of them or you neglect one of the other ones. And I think to be that, to be successful in those realms of life, it would be helpful to have a vocabulary with your inner voice. And I've tried to do that. I'm not sure that it's perfect, but having the four words, find your passions, which is an overused word, but it's a word that basically includes your talents, includes your likes, your dislikes, and also your context. Then find your principles, which will evolve over time. Started with me with the, the golden rule uh, taught by the Catholic school, but your principles. And my principles you know, evolved over time. Some stayed with me, some left. And now my biggest principle is gratitude. Then finally, finally the right partners. I think that's really key. I was only as good as the people I surrounded myself with, including my wife. You know, it's very important to find a partner, but it's also partners in everything you do. You need different partners in the work part of life, different partners in the community part of life. And then finally, I find writing plans down. And when you write plans down, especially as a young person, look at your life context. Look at what's going to happen in your lifetime. What are the waves and the cycles or the themes that you might want to get involved with? And if the success is marrying those passions and principles, collecting the right partners, and then finding the wave. And also, if I could give you one sentence besides anything's possible, 
education solution to almost everything. My last cliche is never be a victim. Use the energy in being a victim to figure out what's next. No matter where the road turned, Ed has followed it with courage and perseverance, living by the principle that giving to others is life's ultimate reward. A huge thank you to Ed for sharing his story with us today. If you enjoyed our conversation, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.